What you're about to hear is the fifth episode of a new history channel on YouTube called the Pacific War Channel. It might be in your best interest to listen to the previous episodes as they do give some background, but picking it up here might just be fine as well for you. Before starting this episode, please think about this. Over 20 to 30 million people are believed to have died during this event, with some districts in China losing 40 to 80% of their population. This was the bloodiest conflict in world history until the Second World War. Let that sink in a little bit. If you are a Western audience, you most likely have never even heard of this event. And it is only overshadowed by World War II's death toll. Please enjoy the Taiping Rebellion of 1850-1864. You are listening to the Pacific War Channel's podcast. If you wish to see the video version of these podcasts, go to the Pacific War Channel on YouTube. Hello there. Welcome to the Pacific War Channel, the channel where we cover the complete history of the Asia-Pacific War from 1937 to 1945. We are currently looking at the major historical events that led up to the Pacific War. Today's episode is going to be on the Taiping Rebellion of 1850 to 1864. If you didn't already watch my previous episode on the Second Opium War of 1856 to 1860, you should probably click here now, as it gives a lot of the uh, background information as to what's going on in China during this entire period. And as we mentioned in our last episode, China after the First Opium War was in a terrible situation. The imperial court positions, which were only obtainable by rigorous examination, guaranteeing the competency of the ruling class in China, had changed as a result of social upheaval. Now by the 1850s, anyone with $800 could buy their way into the official positions, and as a result, the imperial court began to decay. The inefficient imperial court overly taxed the population, was rampantly corrupt, and it officially discriminated against minority groups within China. There was also an overflow of the Hanghe River in 1856, which destroyed thousands of acres of rice paddies. China had recently had a population boom from 125 million in 1736 to a whopping 432 million by 1852, and the flood created a mass famine. Moreover, the Treaty of Nanjing after the First Opium War of 1839 to 1842 completely humiliated the Chinese, and all of this created a perfect catalyst for rebellion. The Taiping Rebellion began in the southeastern province of Gangji in 1851, and it lasted until its final suppression in 1864. The leader of the rebellion was a man named Hong Xuquan, the third son of a hard-working rural family in Guangdong. Hong's family were Hakka, a minority people in southern China. His family made many sacrifices to get him educated enough to try for a place in the scholarly gentry by taking the civil service exam. Hong failed the civil service examinations twice, humiliating him and leading him to go to Canton to continue studying in hopes of passing for the third time around. It was also around this time he came into contact with Protestant missionaries and briefly read loose translations of the Christian Bible in Chinese. After failing the exam for the third time, Hong suffered a nervous breakdown, which was accompanied by delirium and a series of hallucinations. In these visions, Hong found himself talking to an older, bearded man with golden hair who wore a black dragon robe and was called Elder Brother. The man gave him a sword and taught him how to slay demons who were infesting heaven. 
Hong went on like this until in 1843 he tried to pass the exam for a fourth time and failed. This resulted in another nervous breakdown and Hong began to interpret these visions where he was talking with his elder brother. He then came to the conclusion that elder brother was actually Jesus Christ and Hong was the younger brother of Jesus Christ. Hong began burning all Confucian and Buddhist statues and books in his house and then started to preach to the community of his divine mission which was to kill demons who were Chinese gods and the current emperor of China, Xiang Feng. Hong's charismatic preaching in 1847 in Guangxi began to create a large following, many of which were fellow Hakkas. After a while, more minority groups converted and even members of the triad organization joined. You see, the triads had begun a secret movement to oppose the current Manchu Red Qing Dynasty in the hopes of restoring the old Han-run Ming Dynasty back to the Dragon Throne. As more and more converted, Hong's teaching began to target the Qing Dynasty in particular, stating it was righteous to destroy it and create a heavenly kingdom. This kingdom was called the Qianping Tianguao, Heavenly Kingdom, literally meaning the Heavenly Kingdom of Great Peace. Hong declared himself the Heavenly King of the new dynasty, and his followers were called Pao Shengqi, in English would be God Worshippers. By 1851, Hong had recruited over 20,000 God Worshippers. A note of importance, Hong's philosophy was of opium abstinence, and many joined his cause as a way to kick off the drug. The Taiping Rebellion was a political and military force with a proto-12-step program for recovering addicts, a sort of theology that liberated its adherents from substance abuse. This is not limited to just opium. It included alcohol, gambling, tobacco, prostitution, the pig trade, and any other form of slavery. This is all very important because the Qing Dynasty's military may have been suffering rates of up to 90% addiction to opium during this period, while Hong had banned the substance from his military completely. It has been argued by scholars that this accounted for a large part of the early military successes of the rebellion. Hong's most prominent disciple, a charismatic ex-opium smuggler and coal salesman, Yang Jiguing, was to be the early movement's military genius. In January 1851, in the southern province of Gangji, local Qing officials launched a campaign of religious persecution targeting the god-worshippers. The Qing military quickly encircled and attempted to attack the god-worshippers. This led to 20,000 Taiping rebels to rout a Qing force of over 30,000 stationed in nearby Jianxian, many comprised of the Green Standard Army. I will get into the specifics of both forces later on, as it is extremely complicated, so please bear with me. The Qing forces, led by Zhuo Fengqi, tried to launch an offensive in Jianxian, but the rebels anticipated the attack and ambushed them near Siwang Dike, Keijing Village, and near Thistle Mountain. Many of the Qing forces were repulsed from Thistle Mountain by 10,000 rebels, armed only with pikes and halberds. Taiping women also fought alongside the men in what is known as the Jianxian Uprising. A large reason for his, his success, it should be noted, is that Qing forces were also busy suppressing the Tianzhu Rebellion nearby. After this victory on January the 11th, Hong officially declared himself the Heavenly King of the Heavenly Kingdom of Peace and began to march. 
He adapted the Ten Commandments for Chinese sensibilities to his doctrine, naming the emperor as a false god in the First Commandment and adding obedience to Hong and his officials as the fourth. He then ordered the god worshippers to cut off their cues as a universal symbol of cutting their servitude to the alien Manchu Qing dynasty. Now before I speak about the battles that raged until 1864, I will try to explain what the militaries looked like and how they worked. Please note that both the Taiping rebels and the Qing military changed dramatically over the course of 1850 to 1864, and I am merely giving a general overview. The Taiping rebels, as already mentioned, did not wear their hair in the Manchu Q style. They often kept it long and loose or tied up in a knot. They got the nickname Changmei Xia, long-haired bandits from this. Their usual uniform was red jackets with blue trousers, and some wore red turbans or a headscarf, but many simply wore whatever they could get their hands on. They were rebels after all. Their two flags can be seen here. The Shtin Army Corps consisted of 13,156 men divided into five Xi regiments, 2,500 men with officers. Each Xi was divided into five Lu battalions of 500 men and each had five Tzu companies of 100. Each Tzu had five Liang platoons of 25 men with a sergeant. Liang was made up of four Wu squads of privates with a corporal. Now the structure of the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom had Hong as King of Heaven. Underneath him was the South King, the East King, West King, North King, and Flank King, each with their respective control of over 100,000 people, including one army. Most of the kings died early into the rebellion in the mid-1850s and were replaced by princes who took up their respective regions. It is estimated that at their height, the Taiping rebels numbered over 2 million soldiers. Initially, women took up the frontline fighting, as I mentioned with the Battle of Jinxian, but there is zero evidence of women fighting after 1853. Men and women were rigidly segregated on active service, and the women served in the field mostly to dig trenches and construct earthworks. Interestingly, as late as 1858, 10,000 women were specifically garrisoned in the capital of Nanjing and drilled, although they don't seem to have been fighting in any battles. The majority of the military was armed with an 8 to 18 foot long spear and a knife or sword such as the Lu Yadiao. Sorry, that was very hard to pronounce. Some had bows, though archery was less common in southern China, and firearms were initially uncommon, comprised of matchlocks and jinjiaos. The jinjiao could be as long as 10 feet and was crewed by two to five men, fired usually upon a tripod or even a man's shoulder. Ouch, it really probably hurt. The shot weighed between four ounces to two pounds and had a range of 1,000 yards. By the 1860s, the Taipings acquired some Western firearms, such as muskets and rifles. In the Battle of Tsingpu in 1863, nearly one-third of the Taiping army held muskets or an Einfield 1853 rifle. All sorts of other weapons were usually like uh, stink pots, handmade powder bags, or fireworks, whatever they could get their hands on. Now, the Qing Dynasty's military is a complex nightmare to explain for such a short episode. I'm going to try my best to summarize it. The Qing military consisted of approximately 3.4 million soldiers, which was fighting not only the Taiping Rebellion, but countless other rebellions all at the same time. There was also the Second Opium War going on, so let's not forget that. The army can be broken down into 
the Eight Banners Army, consisting of mostly Manchus, Mongolians, roughly around 250,000. This was more of an imperial guard force that was stationed mostly near the Peking area. There was also the Green Standard Army, consisting almost entirely of Han Chinese, around 610,000 strong. They were the real military that was created because the Eight Banner Army was extremely inefficient at war. Now we have the Yung and Yunying armies, volunteers known as Yung Braves, were organized because of the poor performance of the Green Standard Army. In the 1850s, the emperor commissioned numerous provincial officials to raise such units. These units ended up being more successful than the Eight Banner or Green Standard Army in the end. The main Yungyings consisted of Xiang Militia, organized in Hunan by Tseng Gufan in 1853, so around 130,000 strong. The Hui Military, organized in Anhui, which was about 70,000 people strong. And the Chu Militia, organized in Sichuan, was around 40,000 strong. There was also village militias, known in Chinese as Tuanlian, usually comprised of 200 to 500 men per small village and 2,000 per large village, ranged to be in the countless thousands and fought for either the Imperials or the Taipings, depending on who was in the region. Now, there was a specific force called the Ever Victorious Army, which will be called Eva for short. There were 5,000 strong. The Eva was originally a foreign mercenary force formed under the command of an American filibuster. Frederick Townsend Ward in 1860. It soon became an army of Chinese soldiers trained and led by Western officers. It began as a local strategic support group to repel Taiping rebels from Shanghai, which the Western forces of Britain and France were occupying as a result of the ongoing Second Opium War. This eventually led the Eva to help the Qing military within the Shanghai region, because the Westerners really did not want the Taiping government to ruin their trade deals, as you can imagine. The Eva soldiers were armed with 44 American Colt Dragoon revolvers, or 38 Colt Navy revolvers, .577 sharp percussion carbines, .702 British Tower muskets, or the .577 Einfield rifle. Artillery was the 8-inch howitzer, motors, rocket tubes, and riverboat flotillas. They also had artillery mounted on them. The Imperial forces, aside from the Eva, were equipped with various weapons. Regulations apparently required that each man had a shield, a bow, matchlock, spear, and two swords. But in reality, the majority were equipped with no more than a sword, polearm, or spear. Uh, Northern Chinese forces were skilled archers, particularly the Mongolian bannermen, who used bows. The bow was considered a more effective weapon than the matchlock for those skilled in archery. Remember, southern China, where the majority of the Taiping rebels came from, were not known for archery as much, so the northerners had a decisive advantage. Jingals were used on tripods or mounted on cavalry, and the Qing military had a large amount of cavalry, which the Taipings dramatically lacked. Western firearms, such as the ones the Eva were using, were used in small numbers. Uh, for example, it is estimated that the Hui armies had at least 1,000 muskets and rifles in 1862. This increased to about 15,000 by 1864. Less conventional weapons included magazine-fitted crossbows capable of firing 10 bolts rapidly or rocket-propelled barbed arrows fitted with fireworks, which sounds absolutely awesome. I really hope to edit something in to show these off. Those must have been cool. Uh, the artillery included long dragon cannons made from brass, iron, and copper, wood, and usually constructed to look like dragons. 
These were entrenched or mounted on carriages. By the 1860s, some small caliber field artillery began to be used on mule-drawn carriages. Both Taipings and the Imperials tried to copy Western exploding shells with limited success. There is so much more to say about all of this, but I would have to dedicate an entire episode just to go into the weaponry alone. Alright, so now that you have somewhat of an understanding of what the armies look like, let's get to the actual rebellion again. After the Jintian uprising, the god worshippers abandoned their stronghold in the Thistle Mountain and began to march on Yunggang. Now, they were around 60,000 strong. September the 24th, 1851, the Taipings took Yunggang fairly easily because of the numbers and the lack of coordination by the Qing forces. They established the north-south-west-east-and-flank-king system, a Taiping calendar, and other social reforms at this time. By 1852, the Taipings were driven out of Yongan by the Qing military encirclement, in which they lost around 20% of their forces. They regroup and begin to march north towards the heavenly fortified city of Changxia. There, they are ambushed along the way by Qing forces, losing over 10,000 men, but soon begin a siege on the city and dig tunnels to breach the walls. The West King, Xiao Zhongui, leading some of the forces, was trying to boost morale by waving a Taiping banner during the siege and was shot by a Qing soldier defending the wall. Hong eventually calls off the siege in November 1852 and then continues to march north as his forces were already taking the surrounding region. You see, the Taiping strategy was to take city after city, but quickly abandon them. This was because the Qing military was constantly behind them, trying desperately to encircle them to halt their advances. By 1852, the South and West King both die in battle, but the Taiping army has now grown to possibly half a million strong. Next, they take Yao Zhuo and seize over 5,000 boats, which they use to sail up the Yangtze River. They came up to the strongly walled and massively guarded city of Wuchang, which is the modern-day Wuhan for your information, which is quite a present issue, as this is COVID. They send troops north to seize the two wealthy towns of Hangyang and Hankuo in December. Once these are captured, they construct an enormous floating bridge with boats to cross the Yangtze so that they can attack Wuchang on the other side, where it has weaker walls. Again, the Taipings dig tunnels into the city, but the defenders create sunken listening posts to pinpoint where they are digging and counter-tunnel to attack them. Eventually, the civilian population in Wuchang joined the Taiping cause as their homes were already being destroyed and they have little, little to lose at this point. On January the 12th, 1853, Hong's forces blow open the gates and massacre every Manchu soldier they find on the grounds that they are demons. Hong imposes the death penalty on the moneylenders and corrupt officials and thus wins the peasants over to his cause. It was common in all of these major city battles for the Taipings to to spare the civilians and kill the proclaimed demons in order to secure more peasants to recruit for the army. The siege of Anqing was next and it fell in a similar fashion to Wuchang. The major city of Nanjing was now open to attack. With a force of 750,000 men now, the Taipings reached Nanjing on March the 6th, 1853. The city is guarded by 20,000 Eight Banner forces and 40,000 Green Standard Army forces. For over two weeks, the Taipings tunneled beneath the city walls in order to plant explosives and managed to blow up a large hole in the wall. The Taipings flood into the Imperial City on March the 20th, reaching the home of the Manchu garrison. 
The eight bannermen defend against the Taiping human wave attack. This is an infantry tactic where the attacker makes a frontal assault, unprotected with a dense formation trying to overrun and overwhelm the defender in melee combat. The idea is to sweep the enemy with sheer weight and momentum. The battle is extremely bloody with over 10,000 Taiping casualties. The eight bannermen and green standard forces of 30,000 members of their Manchu families are butchered when the city is captured. Hong is merciless to the people of Nanjing, who he considers all demons. Besides killing the, us uh, you know, the usual suspects like moneylenders, Manchus, corrupt officials, and the rich, this time there was a lot of women and children that were killed. Now, while the god worshippers prayed for their victims, the demon prisoners were herded en masse into buildings which were lit on fire. Unfortunately for many Manchus, they were easily identifiable because of the way their deformed skulls looked during um, infancy. They would bind their skulls. That's uh, something I should have maybe said at the beginning. The Yangtze River was literally um, overflowing with corpses at this point. The seizure of Nanjing allowed Hong to effectively block the Yangtze and thus Peking itself from the southern lands which fed it. At this point, the Taipings could march on Peking and almost certainly have overthrown Emperors Yangfeng and with him, the Qing Dynasty. However, this is not what ends up happening. Hong entered Nanjing on March the 30th, 1853, apparently carried on a golden litter and accompanied by over 36 women of great beauty riding horses and carrying yellow parasols. This would have been quite a very shocking scene in China where women were supposedly only there to maintain a demure demeanor. Ten days later, Hong began wearing a yellow robe and the shoes of an emperor, retiring in the Nanjing's viceroy's palace, where he never left for over ten years. Hong declares Nanjing to be Tianjiang, the heavenly capital, and it seems it, he then went into a sex-crazed period of depression and decadence. He stopped shaving and was attended by over 800 female servants. Some French observers reported that Hong kidnapped and raped French virgins, whom he forced into the palace harem. Needless to say, he allowed matters of governance to be done by subordinates while he lived it up. The subordinates devised a land distribution system, created public granaries where food could be stored, and implemented military training programs for the civilians. Hong made many social reforms, such as segregating the sexes, abolishing foot binding, abolishing private property when possible, and redistributing land. In many ways, the Taiping ideology can be seen as a precursor to Marxism. It seems that the wealth and comfort in Nanjing did not just soften Hong, it also affected his generals, who were spared his laws, like the prohibition of sex. Hong continued to pay lip service to the revolution's original goal of capturing Peking and ousting the demon emperor Jiangfeng while him and his generals enjoyed the high life in Nanjing. In May 1853, Hong sent a measly army of only 20,000 soldiers to march in Peking. The troops were ill-prepared for the severe winter conditions, and many fell victim to the weather. Also, there was no supply lines kept from Nanjing, and extreme foraging hindered the troops. The force made it around 100 miles before Peking when Emperor Xiangfeng unleashed his secret weapon, a mercenary force of Mongolian cavalry led by our old friend, Prince Sang Linquin, who we will call Sang from now on, to encircle the Taiping rebels, who had no cavalry. 
the rebel infantry were no match for the faster-moving Mongol cavalry archers, who dispersed the army quickly before it could even threaten Peking. The Qing forces also diverted water from the Grand Canal to flood nearby Taiping camps. The rebels, you know, they clung to makeshift rafts trying to escape, with remnant survivors driven to Lianjian, where they were completely annihilated by the Mongol cavalry. The failure to send sufficient forces to Peking or support them led the Taipings to focus on defending their new capital in Nanjing. Thereafter, their field armies had to be recalled to Nanjing constantly to frustrate the Qing forces attempting to encircle the Nanjing region. This led the Qing to set up two imperialist headquarters on the north and south of the Yangtze. From then on, the Qing military constantly attempted to retake cities around Nanjing in order to encircle and strangle them. In December 1856, Yang Zuqing, the East King, began to speak as the voice of God, stating that Hong was too harsh on those around him and too indulgent of his four-year-old son, Tiangui Fu. Yang strengthened his position by claiming visions similar to Hong's, and by the summer of 1856, it seemed apparent that preparations were being made to transfer power to Nanjing to him. Surprisingly, Yang's rival, the northern king, Wei Chanhui, suddenly attacks his forces and kills Yang, along with 20,000 of his supporters, in a bloody two-week purge, where it is estimated that between 10,000 to 100,000 people die fighting. Please note that in 1856, the Second Opium War has just kicked off. It's in the background. Disturbed by the purge, the flank king, Shi Dake, returns to Nanjing in October 1857, speaking out against Wei Chanhui for his actions. Wei commands his force to kill Shi's family members, and then Shi flees the city and prepares his troops to attack the city. Hong then has Wei killed and sends his head to Shi to prove he has avenged his family's deaths, so that Shi returns to the city. Hong then names two of his elder brothers as new kings, Hong Wenfa as peace king and Hong Rande as blessings king. This led to hard feelings of resentment for Shi, who saw competition with the family members of the Hongs. Let's remember, Shui was the last remaining king before these two were promoted. So, hard feelings. In 1858, a Qing army attempts a siege on Nanjing with over 200,000 troops, but they are routed by Li Zhucheng's forces by May 1860, and the Qing lose a devastating 60,000 men. Inside the palace, Hong has become more and more reclusive and surrounding himself with his harem and immediate family members. Hong is beginning to only trust his immediate family now and proclaims Hong Ringgang as shield king to increase his family king structure. Shi is unable to get along with the Hongs and strikes out on his own into the western province in 1857 taking about 70,000 troops with him. He has minor successes campaigning in the eight provinces but is eventually captured and executed by Qing forces by 1863. The purge and Shi's departure mark the beginnings of the Taiping's fall basically, effectively eliminating capable military leaders and many of the experienced officers. There was some hope, though, with the promotion of Li Zhucheng to Eastern King, who was given the orders to capture Shanghai in early 1861. Li Zhucheng took 500,000 troops with him into marching on Shanghai, taking Zhuzhou on the way, very easily. Encouraged by the easy conquest of Zhuzhou, 
Li believes the Western foreigners of Shanghai will welcome the Taipings with open arms. This is because the Western foreigners had previously contacted Nanjing and stated that they would remain neutral during the entire conflict. Li hopes to trade for Western firearms and steamships from the Anglo-French traders there who are currently at war with the Qing dynasty. You know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Take note, Emperor Jiang Fang dies in 1861 and is succeeded by Emperor Tong Yi. Also, a Qing force led by Zheng Guogang managed to recapture Anqing from the Taiping. Now, this is where I would argue the Taiping Rebellion met its match. On August 18, 1861, the Taipings reached the Shanghai region, forcing the Qing military to flee and regroup behind the walls of Shanghai City. The Taiping forces advanced to the wall city, expecting the western foreigners to embrace them, but instead are met with gunfire from the walls. Frederick Townsend wards 3,000 Ava troops, who initially were formed to fight piracy, now had orders to defend the Shanghai region from the Taiping rebels, officially withdrawing the western's promise of neutrality. The Taipings had orders not to fire on any westerners, and the result was about 300 Taipings dead, and with it, the hopes of ever trading with them. The Taiping forces then broke into five major army groups led by Tan Zhuogang, Li Rongfei, Ji Qingyang, Chen Kianshu, and Chen Bingwang. I am sorry if I mispronounce these names, who begin to attack and occupy local city suburbs of the Shanghai region, such as Pudong, Xiatang, Tai. Chang, Jiangjing, Nanhui, all in preparation for a large assault on the city of Shanghai. The defenders consisted of 40,000 Green Standard Army members led by Huang Yisheng, 20,000 Huiying militia led by Li Hongzhang, and wards 33,000 Ava troops. What occurs in this region from then on is a series of absolutely terrible defeats for the Taipings. March 1st, 20,000 Taiping rebels leave Xiaotang and attack Pudong where they run into wards Ava force. The Ava routes the rebels using sharp repeating rifles, inflicting high casualties and expelling them not just from Pudong, but also from Xiaotang. On April 15th, 5,000 Green Standard Army members encircle the Taipings who occupy Tiankang. Li Zucheng orders a relief force of 100,000 men on April 19th to help which forces the Green Standards to flee, but they are caught in between and are completely wiped out. On April the 29th, Major General Chen Binwen takes his forces from Jiandian to attack Songjiang, where he faces Huiying militia, who effectively defend the city. Binwen is forced to make a retreat west as a result of this. May the 1st, Li Rongfei's Taiping forces in Naihui are encircled by the Huiying militia and are forced to surrender. By the end of May, with all these setbacks, the Taipings were effectively expelled from a 30-mile radius of the Shanghai proper region. In September 1862, Tan Zhaoguang, with a Taiping force of 80,000, mounts a second attack on the Shanghai proper, being defended by a force of 20,000 Huiying militia commanded by Major General Guo Songlin. The Taipings move in rapidly, reaching Qingpu, five kilometers from Shanghai City. Just before they can launch the attack, the Qing Navy, led by Huang Yixin, bombards them from the river. 
Then the Ava forces show up, devastating the Taiping rebels with sharp repeating rifles and Colt revolvers, completely halting, haltering their attack. The Taipings are stuck and use the time to build floating bridges to retreat by going around the defender. The Qing navy combined with 6,000 Hui militia make eight successful attacks on the trapped Taipings, cutting off their retreat. The Hui militia break through the line of Taiping and massacre over 30,000 of them. The remaining Taiping forces under General Guo Yangguang and General Tan flee to Sushuo, where they try to fortify and defend it. The Hui Ying militia, along with the Eva forces, successfully attack them over four times, and the Taipings lose Suashuo. Warden and his Eva forces attack the Taipings in Zixi on September the 20th, 1862. Ward leads a frontal assault and is shot by a Taiping musketeer. Ward manages to win the battle, but dies soon after because of his injury. He is replaced by Charles George Gordon, known as Chinese Gordon. By 1863, Shi Dekai fights a battle in Chengdu, trying to stop the Qing forces from reaching Nanjing. He ends up encircled and surrenders, which results in his execution. Now the path to Nanjing is laid open to the Qing forces. This led Hong to retreat more and more to his harem and depression until he officially announced that his son, Tianggui, would now deal with all worldly affairs so Hong could concentrate on leading his followers to their heavenly place. Hong changed his son's name to Tianggui Fu, Heaven's Precious Happiness, it was also at this point when Hong stopped seeing anyone but his closest friends and family members, completely secluding himself. As a result of their major victories, the Qing military reorganizes their command to Zheng Guofan, Zhuo Zhuantang, and Li Hongzhang, who are ordered to retake Nanjing. The Eva are restricted to their Shanghai territory, but also defend port cities such as Ningbo, where on May the 10th, they eradicate Taiping forces attempting to occupy it. Popular opinion of the Taipings begin to turn as the Chinese peasants begin to join the Wei Ying militia and drive Taiping rebels out of their villages. The peasants, as a result of the Shanghai expedition, had their farms depleted and the constant marches and countermarches were hindering harvests. At this time, the Taiping forces were now underfed, ridden with disease, and left stranded without proper winter garments during a particularly rough winter. Nanjing region became a battleground and the Qing forces were encircling them. 1863, Zheng Guofan, Zheng Guozhan, and Zhu Hongzhang lead a combined Xiang militia force of over 500,000 men to march in Nanjing. These forces, similar to the Wei militia, are a standing army group created by Zheng Guofan, originating in Hunan province. They consist of villager militia groups and many ex-Taiping rebels. It is during this upcoming battle, the Third Battle of Nanjing, where this is a clear-cut battle of modern arms versus primitive. The Jing militia forces had many western arms, and reportedly the first Chinese-made bolt-action rifle, Albeit just a few. The Taipings were disease-ridden, starving, and relying on melee weapons with fewer firearms at this point. The Zhang militia take the suburbs of Nanjing battle after battle as the Qing navy under Admiral Peng Yulin takes Guochun and other key river areas. By the late 1863, Nanjing was effectively under siege and they began to starve. On December the 20th, 1863, Li 
Su Chang urges Hong to abandon Nanjing and flee. Hong rejects his plea and takes command again after such a long period of seclusion. Hong declares that anyone who disobeys him is thus disobeying with God and would be executed. The effect is disastrous, and the Taiping arming results in a massive discontent. The soldiers are not happy. This leads over 200,000 soldiers to surrender before the siege phase, and before a major battle could even take place. In February, the Tianbao castle sitting on the Purple Mountain surrenders to Xi'an forces, which allows Zhang Guozhen to deploy troops on the vulnerable gates of Nanjing. On March 24th, Zhang Guozhen orders his men to make an attack on Nanjing using wall-climbing ladders, but the Taipings manage to beat them down. The Xi'an then take a page out of the Taiping siege book and begin to dig tunnels at Chuoyang, Shans, and Jinchuan gates. The Taipings counter-tunnel, but the Xi'an are able to use mines to explode portions of the wall at this point. Now, on June the 1st, 1864, Hong dies. As a result of mass starvation of Nanjing, Hong told the people that God was protecting them by scattering manna weeds around the grounds, as he had once done for the children of Israel. According to his son, Tiang Guifu, Hong ate manna weeds growing outside the palace that made him ill, and he died. According to Li Zhucheng, Hong committed suicide by poisoning himself. Hong's body was wrapped in the emperor's yellow shroud and buried without a coffin, which was the Taiping's method. It was announced to the people that Hong, the heavenly king, had gone to heaven to request from God to send an army to help the Taiping's defend Nanjing. Tiang Guifei, his son, is pronounced heavenly king, and Li Zucheng is now in full command of the military and political affairs. Unfortunately, this is far too late to even matter. On July the 3rd, 1864, Jibao Castle on the Purple Mountain falls to Xi'an forces, which allows them to set up an artillery to bombard the city. The effect was heavy casualties on the Taipings, who tried desperately to fight in the tunnels and above while being bombarded. Li Zucheng gets desperate and he orders a small force to break out of Nanjing at night in, a, in an attempt to sabotage the tunnels. The tunnelers, realizing they were being attacked, detonated the mines under the Taiping Gate, which breaks the wall, killing hundreds of people within the city. 60,000 Xiang soldiers then rush into the city from the opening while the Taiping defenders struggle to hold them back. They fight street to street in a bloody melee, while Xiang forces at Shen's and Xiaoyang gate use ladders to climb up the wall to link up with the forces. With the fall of the remaining gates of Nanjing, Li runs to the Viceroy Palace to rescue Tianguei Fei. Li's force is attacked by General Chen Xi's Xiang force, and Li is forced to flee to the Qingliang Mountain. Li holds only 1,000 men left and makes an attempt at the Taiping Gate at night disguised as Xiang soldiers, but only manages to escape to Ming Xiaoling Mausoleum. The only reason Li and his men were able to get to the mausoleum was because the Xiang army at this point was full-scale looting of Nanjing and too busy to pay attention. The massive looting lasted until July the 26th, when the city was literally lit on fire. On July the 30th, the Xiang forces find the body of Hong, they exhume it, behead it, and cremate it. They then take the ashes and blast them out of a cannon to ensure his remains have no resting place. This is the eternal punishment for his rebellion. 
Li tries to find Jiang Guifei again, but his small force of a thousand men is attacked by a cavalry force of 700. This results in a large-scale carnage, and many Taiping commanders are taken prisoner. Li himself is captured near the Square Mountain on July 28th, when his horse collapses on him. He is forced to write down his confessions, and then he is executed. Zhang Guifei and Hong Rigan manage to escape with around 1,000 followers and get as far as Xichang Zhangji. Many Taiping forces attempt to rally together in northern Zhejiang to find Jiang Guifei and continue his rebellion. Unfortunately, Zhang Guifei is captured by Zhang Guofan, his cavalry units. Zhang Guifei was executed on November the 18th, 1864. The remnants of Taiping forces attempt to hold out, but were eradicated by 1871 in regions such as Zhangji and Fujian. Estimates are unreliable, but it is said that a total of 10 million troops have been involved in the Taiping Rebellion. Over 600 cities changed hands time and time again during 15 years of combat. Over 20 to 30 million people are believed to have died, with some districts losing 40 to 80 percent of their population. The Taiping Rebellion was thus the bloodiest conflict in world history until the Second World War. Let that sink in a little bit. If you're a Western audience member, you're most likely you've never even heard of this event, and it is only overshadowed by World War II's death toll. So let us just summarize everything that we have just learnt. What caused the Taiping's defeat? In a military sense, it was the failure to take advantage of the Qing's preoccupation with the Second Opium War and march in Peking with a substantial force after taking Nanjing. If Hong had sent a real force in Peking instead of 20,000 men and left Nanjing like he did so many other cities, he could have taken Peking as his heavenly kingdom. The Qing would have been forced further north and the Taipings would have had most likely toppled their entire government. Instead, he continuously sent piecemeal armies out of Nanjing while secluding himself within the city. It was a real possibility that the Taipings overthrew the Qing dynasty. The Taiping Rebellion was one rebellion amongst many others going on at the time. There was the Nian Rebellion of 1853 to 1868, the Panthe Rebellion of 1855 to 1873, the Dungan Revolt of 1862 to 1877, all alongside the Second Opium War of 1856-1860. It goes without saying, the Qing Dynasty was really vulnerable in this time. So after all this, what does this have to do with the Pacific War of 1937 to 1945, you might be asking? The Taiping Rebellion was a major inspiration for Sun Yat-sen and Mao Zedong, who would go on to perform their own rebellions. Sun Yat-sen overthrew the Qing dynasty during the Xinhai Revolution of 1911, leading the way for China's first republic. Mao Zedong also took inspiration from the Taiping Rebellion when he fought Chiang Kai-shek's Nationalist Party during the Chinese Civil War of 1927-1950. The Taiping Rebellion, among many other rebellions in the 19th century China, opened the door to revolution, and this is a major reason for the fractured China we see during the Pacific War. I hope you really liked this episode of the Pacific War. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave a like and or comment. As you can see, I have a very hungry bird who's been quite patient this entire video. Join us next time where we are finally going to talk about something outside of China, and that will be the Meiji Restoration of Japan, beginning with its grand opening to the world. This has been the Pacific War Channel, over and out.